I also want to read for us from Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of the mouth, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in our sight, in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. In 1971, Jan. Winner founded Rolling Stone magazine. This is how he described the purpose of the magazine. It says, Rolling Stone was founded and continues to operate in the belief that rock and roll music is the energy center for all sorts of changes revolving rapidly around us. Social, political, cultural, however you want to describe them. Winter basically said, rock music is changing the world, and in this magazine we're going to document those changes. We're going to document the revolution caused by this kind of music. And there's no doubt that rock music has played a role in shaping our culture and our politics. It made the counterculture mainstream, if you will. Rock changed the world, and Rolling Stone magazine has certainly documented the power of rock music to make those changes. But there is a more potent kind of music with an even greater power to change the world, to change the world in a different kind of way, a more potent kind of music that can transform our culture and our politics. This music and these psalms, or really we could say sung prayers to God, are given to us in his very word. They are the psalms. Of course, the Psalms are a potent world changing force. They are the church's anthems of conquest. There's not a magazine dedicated to examining the way the Psalms are changing the world, but maybe there ought to be. If you really want to follow the revolution, you need to look at this music, the music God has given to his people, the songs God has inspired for his people to sing and the hymns that are based upon them. The reason that human that humans are often so miserable. The reason our culture often changes for the worse is because we worship the wrong gods. Our songs glorify idols instead of the true God. False worship is at the root of all human misery. The only way to challenge false worship is with true worship. The only way to push back against this human suffering and and the evil we bring upon ourselves by our idolatry is to stop singing songs to idols and to sing songs to the living God. Worship of the living God is life-changing and world-changing. 
Worship changes us, yes, certainly. But worship also changes the world. Worship transforms the culture. This is so different than the way we often think about worship. Sometimes we think of worship as a kind of retreat from the world or an escape from the world. But that's not really the case. In fact, in truth, worship is the most powerful way we have of engaging the world. It's what you could call liturgical warfare. And it is truly the most potent form of warfare of them all. The primary way, the central way we fight evil and injustice in the world, the primary way we transform the world is through our worship. Oh yes, certainly we do other things. We obey God in our daily callings. We go about our work. We go about our business and seek to be faithful there. We serve. We vote. We engage our neighbors in cultural and political discussions. We seek to set a godly example before others around us. All of those things are important. They're all important. But the most powerful weapon we have in bringing about world transformation is the liturgy. It's the songs and prayers of the church. And this is a truth that Scripture teaches again and again. I want us to look at some examples of this this morning. We'll start with Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, we read most of that chapter this morning. This is a story that takes place, uh, of course, in Old Covenant Israel, or actually in Judah, during the reign of Jehoshaphat, who is one of the few good and courageous kings of Judah. And essentially, a coalition of nations has come against Judah. A group of nations much stronger than Judah have come against Judah and attacked Jerusalem. And so what does the king do to respond to this challenge? He's got the duty to defend his people. What is he going to do? He knows that Judah does not have the military might to win. So what does he do? What do the people do? Well, verse 3, we find Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord. He calls for a fast and he assembles the people together for worship. Note here this very, very clearly. Jehoshaphat gave a liturgical response to a social and political crisis. The social and political crisis did not merely call for a social and political response. A military crisis did not merely call for, for a military response, but this social and political and military crisis called for a liturgical response. When confronted with a military invasion, Jehoshaphat responded with prayer. His nation is getting invaded and he calls a prayer meeting. Jehoshaphat knew that the problem he was facing, like so many problems we're facing in our society today, were beyond any human solution. There was simply no human solution to the problem he was facing. The problems were too great for human wisdom or human strength. This was a fight he could not win. A fight he could not win on his own. So he assembles the people for prayer. Verses 6-12, through 12, then we have the content of the prayer he offered in the midst of the congregation. He confesses God's sovereign rule over the nations. He reminds God in prayer of how he has fought for his people in the past, how God acted in the past on behalf of his people. He reminds God that the temple was built to be a place where the people could gather before God's throne and where they are then arrayed around the throne. They could call upon God in times of great need and affliction. And he concludes his prayer asking God to execute judgment on those who have unjustly attacked them. 
He says, Lord, we don't know what to do. We are powerless against our enemies, but our eyes are on you. In other words, God, we can't solve this problem on our own. We are looking to you. We are trusting in you for deliverance. The whole nation was there. Verse 13 says their wives, their children, their babies were gathered. Just as we're all gathered here today. It's the men, wives, children. It's all of us together. We're all soldiers in God's army. We're all priests gathered at the temple. And this is how Jehoshaphat is viewing his people as a kind of military priesthood. And in the midst of all of this, as Jehoshaphat has prayed on behalf of his people, the spirit comes upon a prophet named Jehaziel. And he says, listen, all Judah and Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, do not be afraid at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm and you will see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Tomorrow go against them. The Lord will be with you. The prophet here really uses words that are reminiscent of the Exodus when the people stood by and watched as God divided the waters of the sea and they stood by and watched as God drowned Pharaoh and the Egyptians destroying them. They stood by and watched as God brought about this great deliverance. Jehaziel says the same kind of thing is going to happen. Stand by. Your eyes are on the Lord. Stand by and watch as the Lord acts. When they hear these promises from the prophet Jehoshaphat and all the people fell before the Lord again in worship. And the Kohathites and the Korites, the musicians in Israel, began to praise the Lord. Leading the people, obviously, in song. Singing God's praises. Singing prayers to God. The message of Jehaziel in the assembly was the clue that Jehoshaphat needed. He now knows what God wants him to do. And so the next day, this is going to be the day of the great battle, the next day, Jehoshaphat again exhorts the people to trust in the Lord. And then he takes those appointed to sing to the Lord and he puts them in holy attire. He does not dress them in military armor. He puts them in liturgical vestments, in holy garments. And he puts those singers right there on the front lines, out in front of the rest of his army. And they begin to sing a song of God's salvation. Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. A song straight out of the Psalms. Jehoshaphat believed they would sing their way to success. They would worship their way to victory. And so he puts the choir out in front. The choir will be his army. The psalm singing choir would lead the way. Judah would charge the enemy but not with nothing but hymn books in her hands. It seems. This is not a military strategy. It's certainly not a military strategy they would teach you at West Point or VMI or someplace like that. It's a liturgical strategy. But it's the strategy for God's people, the strategy Jehoshaphat invokes here. And look at the results, verse 22. And they began to sing, praise, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites and the Moabites and they were routed. Jehoshaphat decided we are going to fight this battle in prayer and in worship and in song. And as they do so, God gives them the victory. God gives them the victory. God sets an ambush for their enemies. They came... Uh, 
against the enemy with, with nothing but song. And through those songs, God gave them success. And as the enemy is routed, all Judah rejoices and the surrounding nations give her rest because now they are afraid. And the Judahites come into Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets continuing to rejoice and praise the Lord in song. God gave Judah the victory through worship. Jehoshaphat waged liturgical warfare. A kind of warfare for which the Ammonites and the Moabites had no countermeasures, no equal response. They had no match. Nothing that could match up against Jehoshaphat's prayers and the songs of the people. See, the real battle, the battle behind the battle, the holy war behind the culture war, if you will, was fought with the sword of song. They conquered with a choir. Their military strength was musical. Through the liturgy, they were able to tap into God's own power as God responded to their praises and their prayers. And again, we need to understand, this does not exclude other forms of action. We don't exactly really know exactly what it looked like when the Lord ambushed the enemy here. But it's very obvious it was through the prayers and the songs of God's people that He gave them the victory. This is what happens when we sing God's praises, when we use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to fight our battles. God ambushes the enemy and He gives us the victory. The psalms are the soundtrack of cultural transformation. These are the songs that change the world. These are the songs that bring about a revolution, a transformation. And you see this again and again and again in Scripture. It's there in Second Chronicles, there are all kinds of other stories about this. Psalm 149 is a great passage about this. There the psalmist says, He trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So you're thinking maybe he trains the psalmist how to use a bow and arrow, how to use a sword and a shield. But a few verses later he says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a harp of ten strings I will sing praises to you. How does God train His fingers to fight? By training Him to pluck the harp in songs of praise. Those songs are acts of war. How will the psalmist fight his battles? By singing God's praises. In Isaiah 37, we find God delivering King Hezekiah from Assyria through prayer. He triumphs over his enemies. He's given peace through prayer. Of course, there's the familiar story of Joshua chapter 6, the great battle of Jericho. A battle that was won liturgically. It was certainly a a, a military battle. It was a culture battle, you could say. But it was won liturgically. As they marched around the city and, and cried out God's praises, it caused the city to fall. Their worship caused a city to fall. If we want Birmingham to be given into our hands, to be given to us, perhaps this is the answer. To shout God's praises, to keep worshiping faithfully. Oh, but somebody might say, well, that's just Old Testament stuff, right? Surely it doesn't work that way today. Well, no, actually it does. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Turn to a New Testament example of this. A New Testament example of liturgical warfare. Acts chapter 16, we read it this morning. Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey. Their missionary journey has been interrupted, it seems, with imprisonment. The missionaries are now prisoners. They were seeking to preach to Rome. Now they've been imprisoned by Rome. They were preaching in Philippi and they got arrested because they interfered with a man's 
way of making a living using a demon-possessed girl as a fortune teller. But their imprisonment really did not mean the end of the mission. Paul and Silas were certainly engaged in a political and cultural battle. I think that's obvious. They were arrested, after all, for being disturbers of the peace. They were accused of subverting the Roman way of life. They were not good, patriotic Roman citizens. They were countering the Roman way of life. They were un-Roman, if you will. And so they had to be thrown into jail. And they might have fought this battle through ordinary means. They might have, say, hired a lawyer to plead their case in court. They might have argued for their free speech rights. But that's not what they did. They knew the real battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that mere kernel weapons could not give them the kind of victory they were seeking. Paul and Silas have been unjustly arrested and imprisoned. They've been beaten and put in the stocks. How do they fight back? How do they fight their battle? It's interesting. They're in prison. And at midnight, which is interesting in itself, because there are a lot of divine deliverances that take place at midnight, like the Passover. At midnight, they are singing hymns and praying to God. They had been put in the very center of the jail, the innermost cell, probably because that was the most secure place. It's like they're in a high-security prison, high-security lockdown. But actually the effect of this is that their prayers and their singing can be heard throughout the whole prison. And no doubt they were praying and singing in order to encourage one another. Paul and Silas praying and singing to one another to lift their spirits so the Spirit of God could minister to them through to, to one another through these songs they're singing. But that's not all. These prayers and these songs are not just means of encouragement. These prayers and songs are weapons with which they will fight. This is how Paul and Silas are fighting the injustice of their imprisonment. It's really interesting. You read the Psalms and you'll find countless prayers for vindication when wrongly accused. Count, countless prayers that are really crying out to God for God to act and to deliver the psalmist in the face of suffering. The psalmist is is suffering some kind of injustice at the hands of his enemies and the psalmist cries out for God to act. Only God can rectify this situation and bring vindication. No doubt those are the kinds of prayers Paul and Silas were praying. One psalm, Psalm 18, seems to fit really, really well with their circumstances. Psalm 18, there the psalmist calls on God to deliver him from his enemies, from the cords of death that have entangled him. Think of the stocks that they're in. And to do so by causing the earth to shake. Psalm 18 says, From the temple he heard my voice, and then the earth reeled and rocked. The mountains trembled and quaked. In Psalm 18, the psalmist goes on to say, The Lord rescued me from my enemy and from those who hated me. He brought me into a broad place and delivered me. Like he's been taken from a prison cell into a wide open space. That's what salvation looks like in Psalm 18. And it happens through an earthquake as the Lord causes the earth to rock and reel. Psalm 18 so perfectly suits the situation Paul and Silas found themselves in and the way they were delivered. I would guess it's what they were singing to one another in prison because it actually describes exactly what happened. Here Paul and Silas are unjustly in prison. They find a psalm to suit the occasion and this is how they fight back. 
through song, and through prayer. And God answers. God caused a great earthquake to break open the jail. Even their bonds fell off. Well, the jailer who is responsible for them, the jailkeeper, knows he will lose his life if the prisoners escape. He knows his life is forfeit if these men escape. And so he draws his sword to take his own life. But Paul calls out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer falls down before Paul and Silas. I'm sure he's wondering at this point, who are these men whose prayers cause earthquakes? Whose prayers break prisoners' bonds? Who are these men? What God are they praying to? And further, who are these men who don't run away when given the chance? Who don't escape the prison when given the opportunity? And so he cries out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? You obviously have been saved by your God. Your God has saved you. I want to be saved as well. What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas got to do mission work even in prison. They tell the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. But this is what I want you to see. It is their liturgical praise that underlies their missional effectiveness. Why was their evangelism effective? Because they had done the liturgy together. Because of their praying and their praising. The jailer, uh, we find, was the real prisoner. A prisoner to his own sins. But now... He is set free. He and his family believe. He and his family are baptized. He fellowships with Paul and Silas, washing their wounds and feeding them. They're no longer his prisoners, but now his brothers. And so you see, liturgical praise, not only for for Paul and Silas did liturgical praise lead to missional effectiveness, but really liturgical praise led to communal formation. Their liturgical prayers and songs form a new community that now includes this jailer and his whole family. Liturgy is the driving force behind the church's evangelistic success. Liturgy is the driving force behind the church's community building. And why is it? It's because we can't do these things in our own strength. We can't do evangelism successfully on our own. We can't carry out the mission effectively on our own. We have no power to do that. We can't build community. We can't build a a, a kind of covenant family in our own strength. Why do these things happen? Because through the liturgy, God's people tap into God's power. When we pray and we praise God, it unleashes God's power. Praying and praising is a way of laying hold of God's power. Because God answers the cries of His people. And that's what happens here. Paul and Silas sang their way out of prison. They prayed their way out of prison. They prayed their way into missional effectiveness. They sang and prayed their way into communal formation, community building. This is the power of Christian worship. Liturgy is warfare. Liturgy sets the captives free. Liturgy makes evangelism effective. Liturgy forms community. Liturgy overcomes injustice. Liturgy changes the world. Liturgy transforms the culture. 
And again, it's not just here in Acts 16. Again, it's all over the Old Testament we saw. It's really all over the New Testament as well. Ephesians 6 is a great passage about the church's spiritual warfare, our holy warfare. And Paul says our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in high places. Our warfare is not against unbelievers, you might say, but against unbelief. Okay, just as insulin is not against diabetics, but against diabetes. So the church's warfare is not against unbelievers, but against unbelief, you might say. It's not against flesh and blood, ultimately. The the New Testament sort of pulls the curtain back. A lot of times in the Old Testament Scriptures, it does seem to be a battle against flesh and blood. But in the New Testament Scriptures, the curtain is pulled back and you see, no, really, it's demonic forces, demonic powers we have to do battle with. And this is why no mere carnal weapons will do. The real enemy is Satan himself and his hosts of demons, his demonic army. And Ephesians 6 goes on to describe the Christian's armor, the church's armor. And it does so in a way that is really reminiscent of the priest's vestments. Israel's high priest was really a warrior. And there in Ephesians 6, Paul unpacks what all the different pieces of the high priest's uniform, what it all really means. And of course, then he ties it all together with prayer. The armor in in Ephesians 6 is really liturgical armor. It's prayer that really ties it all together, that brings it all together there, that will make these weapons, this armor, effective. So Ephesians 6 clearly shows this. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says we don't fight with carnal weapons. The weapons of our warfare come from the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we're able to take every thought captive. We're able to transform the way people think and act in the world as we preach and proclaim God's truth and God works through us. Revelation chapter 8, which we read this morning, points us to the same truth. In Revelation 8, and I think what Revelation really is doing is pulling back the curtain so we can see the true spiritual battle that's taking place behind everything else. You read Acts, you get the earthly perspective on the church's battles. You read Revelation, you get the spiritual or heavenly perspective on the church's battle. Well, in Revelation 8, what happens? The prayers of the saints ascend like incense before the throne of God in heaven then the fire of God's Spirit descends to transform the earth. Prayers go up. The fire of the Spirit comes down. Our prayers arise like incense before God's throne and God acts, casting the fire of His Spirit upon the earth to change everything. In response to the prayers of the saints, God sends blessing upon His people. He sends judgments on their enemies. Revelation 8 is probably pulling the curtain back on the event of Pentecost, where the fiery Spirit is poured out on the church. But it happens again and again every time we cry out to God. Every time our prayers go up, and we, we looked at this with prayer uh, in, in Luke chapter 11, really all of our prayers are prayers for the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches in Luke 11. Our prayers go up. The fire of the Spirit comes down and the whole world is shaken when God casts the fire of His Spirit upon the earth. Revelation 19, I read a little bit of it this morning. Revelation 19, Jesus goes forth conquering and to conquer. He's robed in white. He's riding on His white battle horse. The saints are following behind Him, riding upon and clothed in white as well, riding upon their white horses also. The saints as an army following Him out onto the battlefield. And yes, Jesus Christ there has a sword. 
But the sword comes out of his mouth. It's a mouth sword. A word sword. Christ will preach his way to dominion. How will he strike the nations? How will he rule over the nations with his rod of iron? Through his word. Through the preached word of the gospel. Preaching too is an act of warfare. When I stand in this pulpit or when another fills this pulpit and the Word of God is proclaimed, it's not supposed to be some kind of informative lecture that just imparts information to you. No, it is an act of war. The preaching of the Gospel, the preaching of Christ is a declaration of war. The sermon is a spiritual weapon. It is the sword coming forth from the mouth of Christ, striking the nations. Christ is fighting through me against sin and against unbelief as I preach. When I step into this pulpit, I am wielding the sword of the Word. Or really, it would be better to say, Christ is wielding His sword through me. The the sermon is a sword. The sermon is a weapon. Hebrews 4 describes the two-edged Word of God that the priests would use, cutting us up, transforming us, rearranging our lives. Just as the priests would use a sword to cut up the animals and prepare them for sacrifice so they could be thrown on the altar and transformed into a pleasing sacrifice to God. So this is what the Word of God does in our lives. It is a two-edged sword that cuts up our lives so we can be transformed into sacrifices, pleasing and acceptable to God through the fiery Spirit of God. Now think this through. What are the implications of this? I think they are really astounding. The implications of liturgical warfare, of understanding how the liturgy is militant. God changes the world. God wants us to be world changers. God wants us to go change the world, to disciple the nations. How is it going to happen? The task looks impossible because it is. But we need to understand, God changes the world through our worship. We don't go riot to change the world. We don't take the law into our own hands as vigilantes. We don't resort to unjust forms of violence. The world's liturgy includes all those things. The world's liturgy includes violence and mob rule and intimidation. It includes slander. That's how people in the world try to change the world. But not us. What do we do? We worship God in an orderly and peaceful way. We cry out to God in the prayers and songs He's given to us and other prayers and songs built upon the ones He's given to us. And God takes action in response. It's not sword and spear, it's prayer and praise. The order of the liturgy, God acts through it. But we also need to understand there's nothing automatic about this liturgical warfare. Just going through liturgical motions is not going to change anything. The liturgy liturgy is not magical. There's nothing magical about performing the liturgy. Liturgical warfare is only effective as we really and completely rely upon the Lord like Jehoshaphat did. You see, Jehoshaphat knew his utter dependence upon God. He threw himself upon the mercy of God in his prayers and in his praises. Same thing with Paul and Silas. Liturgical warfare is only effective as we really trust in the Lord the way Paul and Silas did. As we really look to the Lord to deliver us. Look to God as the God of battles. Look to God as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Trust Him to act in response to our songs and prayers. 
Cry out to God and trust that He's going to hear. Call upon God in Christ and watch Him work. The world is going to be conquered for Christ when the history of the world is written in the end. When all is said and done and we can look back back upon the whole fullness of the history of the human race, we will see that Christ has conquered the world. And that He did so through water, bread, wine, and words. These are the instruments of our conquest because these are the instruments of His conquest. These are the weapons of our warfare because Christ is present in them to use them. When the Word is read and sung and prayed, it's like we're taking a battering ram to the gates of hell. Jesus said not even the gates of hell will stand against His church. When we take the words of God and we read them and we sing them and we pray them and we preach them, it's like we're taking a battering ram against the gates of hell. And no, the gates of hell will not stand. And every Lord's Day, we get to take another swing at it. Another swing at the gates of hell. Every time you read Scripture and study Scripture and every time you pray and sing God's praises, you're taking that battering ram against the gates of hell. Nothing causes the demons to tremble more than this, more than the Word sung, read, prayed, preached. In worship, we enter into heaven to worship God, giving Him thanks and praise. In worship, we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In worship, we glorify God's name in heaven, so now we can expect God's name to be glorified on earth. We've done God's will in heaven as we have worshipped Him faithfully. And so now we go out from here looking for God's will to be done on earth in the same way. Understand, what you do here when we gather on a Sunday morning is the single greatest and most potent act we as humans can do. There is nothing more powerful than this. Nothing more powerful than our prayer and our praise. Teddy Kennedy once said that uh, all real change begins at the ballot box. Okay, he was wrong about a lot of things. He was especially wrong about that. Change does not begin in the ballot box. Change begins in the sanctuary. It begins when God's people gather for worship. It begins when God's people gather to praise Him, to petition Him, to hear His Word proclaimed, to hear His promises proclaimed. When we put our trust in the promises He's given to us. Don't put your confidence in princes. Put your confidence in the Prince of Peace. Engage the world around you. Engage the culture. Be an activist for truth and righteousness in your everyday life. God wants us to do these things. But know the real way to change the world is through prayer and praise. The real way to be a world changer is to be a faithful worshiper. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have given us these means, means for which the world has no countermeasure. Father, these means you have given to us of the songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the means of prayer that you open up the heavenly sanctuary to us. Your word as it's read and preached and prayed over. Father, these means are the means You will use to change us and to change the world around us. 
These are the means through which Christ, your son, rules over all as king of kings and lord of lords. Through these means, he will extend his dominion from the river to the ends of the earth. Through these means, his kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we look to you. We stand here and we look to you to act, to fight, to work on our behalf. We have full confidence in you to do these things according to your promises and your word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.